So uh, if you've not been with us, and there's a few visitors here, I'm going to give you a very quick recap of what Neil has been preaching to us about over the last three or four weeks. So we're doing a series uh, about prayer. And um, Neil, first and foremost, prayer is uh, sharing our life with God, isn't it? So this title of everyday life with God is because prayer is central to that. Prayer really is sharing every part of your life with God. And that's the stuff you speak about and the stuff that's not spoken about. It's the, the parts of your work and your family and your social, uh, your social circles. It's in your resting time. It's in your working time. It's the joys. It's the difficulties. It's the sorrows. It's stuff when you're in hospital. It's the stuff when you're playing football. It's every part of your life. God's desire is that we share every single part of it with him. And that's really the essence of prayer. And um, so... We've been, been looking at that, and then we, we tried to think, how does prayer link with our values? So a couple of years ago, we got together as a le- as leadership team and decided we wanted to communicate what the values of this church are, and we want them to be increasingly so. So they're aspirational, but they're also, I think, they do, to, to a degree, reflect actually who we are already. And the first thing is we said we wanted to be a growing community, so we always want this church to grow. Now, at the moment, I know we're struggling for space, so if it did keep growing, we'd struggle. But we, uh, we want it to grow, not because we want to be preoccupied with numbers, we don't at all, but we want new people to become Christians, don't we? So we always want to have one eye on that. We always want to be thinking, how can we evangelize and new people come to join us because they found faith in Christ? And we want to be hold out life disciples. Neil's talked about this for a long, long time in his preaching about every area of our lives being surrendered to God, not just the bits on Sunday, not just the midweek meetings we might, might be part of, but every single part of our life should be worshiped to God. And prayer really comes into, into all of that and about being alert. How, do we, how are we alert to God? One of the ways we're alert to God is in prayer. And probably primarily the main reason we're, we're alert to God is by praying. We get to hear the voice of God as we pray and listen to God. How can we be alert to God? How can we be alert to the moment we are in? That was one of the other sentences we said. We want to be alert to the moment we are in. What moment are you in in your individual life? Is it a stage of change, a transition? Is it a, 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 actually a place of, of tranquil rest? Is it a, a really struggling, difficult place? What is the moment you're in? And what moment are we in as a church? We want to be alive to what God's saying to us as a church and not just go through the motions, but God might actually be saying, well, actually for this period, I want you to focus on this or I want you to be aware of this. And so we want to be alert and we find that out in prayer, through prayer. So today we've, uh, we're looking at being attentive um, to one another. That was one of the other things we said we wanted to be. We want to be attentive. We want to be pay attention to one another. We don't just want to sit here with our eyes closed and have our own individual faith and have a great time on our own. We're part of a community. And prayer comes into that. So Neil um, talked about, about that last week, about paying a careful attention to other through prayer, praying for one another and for caring for one another. And I want to carry that on really this week. He also talked about prayer being priestly work. And that was from 1 Peter, wasn't it? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Each one of you this morning is a priest. <clears throat> None of us are elevated above anybody else. We are priests. And what do priests do? Well, a bit like that unknown bird. I think you, just, you did identify the bird. What was it? Bitten. Bitten. Bitten, bitten, bitten bird. He says it's a little one. It's a little bitten bird. A little bitten bird. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So this little bitten bird that looks extremely odd. It <laughs> uh, looks like it should have 
arms or wings or something. So it's like some kind of... Wings are tucked in. All right, cool. So wings are tucked in. So as that bitten, little bitten bird is standing in a gap between two places... And why did Neil pick this picture? Uh, <coughs> you could have picked a much easier picture. As the little bitten bird is standing in between two stalks, so we, very similarly, are uh, standing between two things, between God and, th- and earth. We are standing between God who is holy and powerful and omnipresent and people that we care about. So that's why we're priests. We, go, we are the go-between between, between God and a world out there that doesn't know God. And that's what we're called to be as Christians. And that can be quite a daunting thing, can't it? To think that, how am I? How am I that go-between? How can I be the priest? But that's who the Bible tells you you are. That's what Peter says to the early church. You're not, you're not, you're not uh, especially set apart because you're, you've got a qualification in theology or because you're extremely confident and charismatic. You're, each one of you and me are a priest. We are the ones who stand in the gap between God and through people that are in need. So what to want to look at today is one story in the early church in Acts 12 and uh, about a crisis, really. And it got me thinking, I don't know about you, but I've been very aware that at the moment there are lots of people in this room, in this church, and some that are not here this morning, who are really struggling and facing incredibly difficult things in their lives. I mean, there's always a time when everybody's facing something, isn't it? But there are some times when it just feels like there are lots of people facing incredibly difficult situations. Some of them would be classed as crises. Crises? Is that a plural crisis? Yeah, crises. Um, and, um, and I've really felt the burden this last few weeks for it because I've, the more I think you, you start to pay attention to one another and find out what's going on in one another's lives and in what we, we care about, the more we start to feel burden for them and feel burden for them in prayer. And um, I don't know about you, but what do you do when you're in a crisis and I was just thinking of the different variations of responses that you could have. One of the ones I've been prone to over the years is worrying incessantly. So you just worry. You, don't, you can't change the situation. And so you just worry and worry and worry. And you try and distract yourself by doing other things. But whatever you do doesn't seem to work. You come back to worrying and it's always there. It's rumbling on in the background all the time. You have this sense of unrest and uneasiness. Um, <clears throat> Or perhaps you're the sort of person who, when somebody's in a crisis, you just think, I have no idea what to say. And so it's better just to avoid them. <laughs> when my father-in-law uh, was killed in a car crash at the age of 44, leaving eight children behind, four of them who were still in teenagers, it was an incredibly, um, we, were ne- we were not expecting it. Nobody was expecting it. And because it was so, so, such a dramatic thing that happened to our family, people didn't know what to say. And that's understandable but what you want when you're in a crisis is not somebody just to avoid you because they don't know what to say do you you want somebody to acknowledge that you're in a crisis and you want them to say something along the lines of I don't know what to say but I just I feel for you or I'm sorry I have no words to say to you and but we found that people just avoided us because they were so upset and it was out of a good place they didn't want didn't know what to say but actually it made things worse because because you were upset and you thought then nobody cares. Um, or perhaps you say, oh, I'll pray for you. You don't do it there. And then you say, I'll pray for you. But then life gets busy and you go away and actually we forget. I think that's why I liked what Neil was saying last week about this, with all the technology we've got at our fingertips, it's actually never been easier to remind ourselves about things. We should never really be able to forget 
something. If you say you're going to pray for somebody, you can put a reminder in your phone if you've got a phone. Um, you could have got a calendar on the wall, probably. You can write it down. So there isn't, really isn't, I mean, my memory is absolutely terrible, by the way. It's atrocious. I don't know what it's going to be like when I'm another 40 years older, because I, I really do worry about that, because my memory is so bad, isn't it, Cameron? Like everything that, everything that my family talks about, I've forgotten pretty much everything. Um, do you tell them, oh, everything will be okay, basically. God's in control. Uh, God knows what he's doing. Those sorts of things that Christians say to one another. Now, I understand what, you're tr- what people are trying to say, essentially try to trust God in it. But sometimes I think saying that can sound two things. One thing, it can sound a little bit insensitive, um, a bit like, well, almost, don't worry about it, God's all right, God's got it in control, which is a bit flippant. Or it can imply that actually that the bad thing that you're going through at the moment is actually God's will somehow. That God is, God is orchestrating this bad thing that's happened to you and he'll bring it around to con- conclusion. He'll bring something good from it. Now, I'm sorry, but to me, my understanding of the Bible is that's not the Bible, that's not Christianity. That's Islam. Everything is the will of Allah. So basically, whatever happens, good or bad, is the will of Allah in Islam. In Christianity, that's not. There's a reason why Jesus said, pray, may your will be done and your kingdom come. Why? Because his will is not always done. <laughs> if, if his will was always done, we'd be no point us praying, may your will be done. Because we look around the world and we think, this cannot be the will of God that there's such a mess in the world. It cannot be. And I don't believe scripture tells us that. So to, almost to imply that God has is, is orchestrated this bad thing that's happening to you or your family or somebody you love is not only a, a, a bit insensitive, but actually it's not biblical to me. Okay, God is with you in all of these circumstances. He never leaves you and never, never fails you in that respect. But it's not his will that, you, that somebody is diagnosed with cancer or somebody is, died, dies in a car crash. You know, we tried to, and we got t- you t- it leaves you with much more questions than it answers if you, if you believe that. Um, or do you, in a question, do you try and fix it or help in some practical way? So I'm like that. I'm a sort of practical person. I want to show people I care. And telling them you're going to pray for them just doesn't really seem enough. Sometimes it feels a bit like, well, it's dead easy to say I'll pray for you, isn't it? But actually, what, how do you demonstrate that in some tangible way? And actually, sometimes there isn't anything practical you can do, is there? Praying sometimes is the, the only thing you can do. Um, so that's always a temptation. Or perhaps what I think we're trying to get to as a church, and some of you do this really, really well, much better than I do, is pray. If, if possible, pray there and then. Because one, you don't forget. Two, why would you not just pray there and then? And three, then go and check in regularly with that person. Go back and check. Don't pray and then just leave it and say, well, I've not seen you for six months. How's it going? Like, go back in and check. And I think, to be honest, that's where we'd like to get to um, as a church. And, and some of you are already doing this really, really well. So what do you do with a crisis? Um, the early church had a crisis and there were no strangers to crises. So we're going to read the uh, passage from today, which is Acts chapter 12 from verses 1 to 19. So Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, 
handing him over to the guards by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing or what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where people were, many people were gathering and praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back in without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept non-knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Sounds a bit regal, doesn't it? Uh, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the believers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and didn't find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that, be, that they be executed. So, there was this crisis in the early church. Not the first and not the last. What was the crisis? Persecution. And um, King Herod, this king, the King Herod in this story is the grandson of the Herod who was king at the time of Jesus' birth. Okay, so he's the grandson of Herod, Herod who, had, who had Jesus, um, yeah, of Jesus' birth. And uh, he had Christians arrested and one of them was killed. That was James. Now this is James, not the, the author of James, the letter James, not the brother of Jesus, that one, the other James, who was the son of Zebedee. There's two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Uh, if you remember the story in Matthew's gospel where, where the mum comes to Jesus and says, right, about my sons, um, can I just ask you, can, can, they sons, can one of them, when you get enter glory, sit on your left-hand side and the other one sit on your right-hand side? And Jesus says, um, you, can, you, can you carry the cup? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they say, yeah, we can do, we can. Well, this is James. He did drink the cup that Jesus drank. He was killed, just as Jesus was, for his faith. And um, um, he imprisoned Peter as well, and they were intending to bring him out for a public trial. So this Herod saw that it actually pleased the Jewish people, the Jews who thought these guys were sort of these renegade, you know, sect that have gone off the way, um, and it pleased them. So you can hear echoes almost of Jesus's trial here, can't you? It was bringing Jesus out to be crucified pleased people, didn't it? Because it was, yeah, he's the troublemaker. He's the one who's blaspheming. And they thought the same here. So, and this is the reality for many of our brothers and sisters in the world today. Um, some of you will know this much better than I do, but in this places this morning for which they're meeting in secret because 
this could happen to them. Somebody from the government could come and it could infiltrate the congregation and then they could take you away and put you in prison or execute you. If they found out you were carrying a Bible or meeting in your home to pray, you could be in risk of your life. We're incredibly blessed this morning, incredibly lucky that we can meet like this, aren't we? And we can, in, in freedom, without any fear, we can come together. So this crisis, and what was the church's response? Well, the first thing the church, church did was they prayed. So, and I love the way it's, uh, it's uh, described here, the word earnest. They, with, and they said they earnestly prayed for Peter. Now, earnestly, I've checked it out in the dictionary just to double check what it means. And the Oxford Dictionary says that to, to be earnest means to be with sincere and intense conviction. And I thought, oh, that's a great phrase. When was the last time I prayed with sincere and intense conviction? When was the last time you prayed like that? Sincerely and intensely. And this conviction that, that God was going to do something, that you, were, that you were touching the heart of God. And um, I'm, I don't know about you, but perhaps it takes a crisis for you to pray like that. I know sometimes it does for me. You get, it's, it's only, you can pray for people for, you know, a headache to go or somebody's having a bad time at work or something and, and they're all bad things, you know, they're all things that are not very nice. But it's when a real crisis hits, somehow that spurs you to really, really pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. And, um, and I was thinking as well about why are prayer meetings the most, bo- most, uh, <laughs> the most boring thing in the world? They're not the most boring thing in the world. There are some things that are much more boring, like shopping. But, um, but why are they always, they often, prayer meetings can often be really boring, can't they? It can just be like really just this dry sense of, let's just, just go through a list of things that are going, that are not very, not very good, and we just pray into God, and, that, and then we get through the list, and we're sort of done, and, we, and that's it. And, they, and they, maybe that's the reason why prayer meetings are the most consistently under, well, worst attended events and meetings in any church. If you, if you put a prayer meeting on, People are less likely to come to a prayer meeting than anything else that you put on. If you put a tombola on, people are more likely to come than they are at a prayer meeting. Now, there could be loads of reasons for that. But I just wonder whether sometimes it's because when we pray together, we don't pray with this sort of conviction, this, in, this intensity, this passion. And what I have been encouraged by was how sometimes when we get together when we pray, and we sing like this morning, we do sing like that. So the, particularly recently when we, when we introduced Waymaker, I don't know what it is about that song because it's, it's a really simple song. But the first time we sang it, it was just like this intensity. And I think because we, pray, we sang it on behalf of other people, didn't we? we? I think I framed it by saying, you're going to sing this on behalf of people that are struggling at the moment. That God is a way maker, that he can provide, uh, he's a promise keeper. He can do something in the situation that we can't do. And we prayed it with an, in, we sang it with an intensity that, that we don't always do. And it was really encouraging. And I don't know about you, but that, that song's a prayer. And some of the songs, that we, lots of the songs we sing are prayers. So really, it's really encouraging when I'm hearing you sing it, when I'm hearing us all doing that. Because I come in, you can feel really low and really a bit just, oh, I don't really want to be here today. I've got all millions of things to do and I've got those things in my mind and I'm feeling a bit low and I'm, not, I'm a bit tired. Um, and I, you come in feeling low and the, the intensity and the passion of other people stirs you up. So when Shirley, you prayed this morning, that's like, as you pray, I'm going, yes. Yes, Lord, that's what I want. So you praying out stirs me up. And then hopefully then I will then carry that on and pray and other people will do it. And that's the sort of, sort of meetings we want, isn't it? Not just our, our, our worship meetings together, but when we pray together as well, that we would stir one another up with this passion and this intensity. And um, I just want to show you a quick video 
um, by uh, one of the other songs we introduced recently was called Raise a Hallelujah. This year as a, a Bethel so Music a family, a few days before Christmas, most of you guys probably were a part of this miracle, but we watched um, Joel and Janie Taylor's little son, Jackson, and he was a few days before Christmas airlifted to intensive care, and we began to fight for Jackson's life. How many of you guys joined in that fight and that symphony of prayer that rose up for a little boy. And a couple, couple weeks into the fight, we got a text one night from Joel that they weren't sure if he was going to make it through the night. And as soon as I heard and read the message, it was like this giant of unbelief stood in front of me. And I just, I just thought, Jackson's going to die tonight. We're not going to see the miracle. And as this giant stood in front of me, all of a sudden, out of my gut, this song started coming out right in the face of the giant. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah As that giant was looking at us, I knew he was going to regret the day he ever pointed his sword at Jackson. Just as Goliath pointed his sword at David, the sword Goliath pointed at David became the sword the little boy picked up and took the giant's head off with. And as we watched this miracle happen in Jackson's body, it was like this giant of unbelief was falling. And our community just began to sing this song. It was just one note in the symphony of prayer rising for his life. So I want to teach it to you this morning. Let's sing. I don't know if you've seen that video before. Um, I don't know how you felt when you watched it. What, how did you feel when you watched it? You got goosebumps. Emotional. Encouraged, encouraged, made you cry. You won that kind of prayer. He was praying from the very core of his being. Yeah, he was praying from the depth of his being. Yeah, and all of those things I felt and feel, even as watching it again for the umpteenth time, you're like flipping out, that's amazing. And you know, and you see that the dad holding the little boy as well, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. Um, and I, I liked what he said about this giant of unbelief. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a person with great faith who prays for things to happen and they happen. I've, I, have, if I think I've got a mustard seed. <laughs> I think I've got enough for a mustard seed, but not much more than that. Um, and this giant, sometimes things are like a giant of unbelief, aren't they? They just feel so big. You think, I don't even know if I can pray this because I almost don't have the faith to believe that even God could do something here. Uh, and I think there was a moment like that for them. Now, this little boy survived, which is amazing, and praise God. But James was murdered. Now, I find it hard to believe that they weren't praying for James. I think they probably were praying for James, but he died. He was executed. And in fact, most of the disciples end with horrible deaths. And you're left with the question, aren't you, that, of why? 
And on Alpha, we get, it's obviously one of the most common objections to faith is why does God, why does there so much suffering in the world? And um, in one sense, the question is very easily answered. Why not? <laughs> because why would it not be, why should it not be me that something bad happens to? Why, sh- why, why, why do I feel like I'm so special that something bad shouldn't happen to me, but it should happen to somebody else? Why not? We live in a world that isn't as it was created to be. It isn't, it's messed up and it's got worse. And not only that, Jesus said exactly, it promised us it would be like this. I often said on the, I said on the Alpha course of the week, Jesus is the worst salesperson in history. Jesus said things like, follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. Now that was basically code for, if you follow me, there's a chance you might get executed. Um, I'll show you how much you must suffer for my name, he said to Paul. That doesn't sound too encouraging, does it? In the world, you will have trouble. You'll be put out of synagogues. In fact, there's a time coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. That's happening now, all across the world. Now, so why should we be be surprised when bad things happen to us? That's exactly what Jesus said would happen to us. In fact, we're worse off sometimes than non-Christians because we have all the stuff that non-Christians have, which is somebody's going to die. We're all going to die anyway. But somebody's going to die young. Somebody's going to get a disease. Somebody's going to have an accident. All these things are going to happen because we're just humans. And on top of that, we may well get persecuted for our faith and be killed or imprisoned or whatever. And we're very lucky because we live in this country. But in, for other Christians all over the world, they've got all the other pressures as well of life, of providing for their family and all that stuff. And on top of that, just because they say they believe in Jesus, they've got, they could be killed today. Now, to me, why should we therefore be surprised? Why should we ask ourselves why? It's exactly what Jesus said it would be like. And it's exactly what we should expect in a world that is so broken. I think the difficult question, the only question I'm left with is, why does God intervene sometimes, like he did for Jackson's life, and he didn't on the other times? There must be hundreds of Jacksons around the world who didn't make it. In this story, Peter was released miraculously, and it's amazing, but James was killed. How do we make sense of that? Now, all I can say is, I don't know. I'd love to be able to say there's an amazing theological reason and be able to say a clear, I've never heard anybody say uh, convincingly that there is a, a good reason why God intervenes sometimes and not others. I just simply do not know. And that's all. I think I'll get to go to my grave probably saying the same thing. I do not know. But is that going to stop me praying? Does that stop the early church? James was killed. Did it stop them praying for Peter? No, it didn't. James was killed, but they prayed earnestly anyway. And Peter was released. That little boy was uh, miraculously healed. So I suppose what my encouragement today is that is that you get the giants of unbelief and you have the disappointments in prayer that you've had over the years where you've prayed for things that hasn't happened. Even when you've had real conviction, even when you've prayed earnestly, even when you've been sincere and passionate and it hasn't happened. But should that stop us praying? No. Does it change the character of God? No. Does it change the fact that God is all powerful and can do anything? No, it doesn't. All we're called to do is to pray and to trust. We, we are not, we can't be in control of the outcome. Prayer made a difference for Peter. God intervened in a miraculous way. And the church, what, what other, else encouraged me here was that the church were astonished. It, it, 
sometimes we think about the early church and we think, we almost idealise them and say, oh, we just need to get back to the early church because they were just these amazing people who shared everything, had an incredible faith, saw miracles. Well, in this story, that's not the case. In this story, Peter turns up at the door. There's this comical event. Peter turns up at the door and the, the girl who opens the door to him is astonished and can't believe it's Peter. She shuts the door on him and leaves him hanging there after they've been praying for however long for him. She goes back in and they say, you're out of your mind. Because it's not Peter, even though at that moment they were praying for Peter to be released. Uh, and then they say, well, it must be his angel, which for me, I don't know whether this is right, but presumably they thought he must have died because he's, they've, he's seen an angel. So their faith wasn't any different to me, to, to the miners. They still were incredibly astonished when what they prayed for miraculously happened. And that encourages me. It doesn't discourage me. It encourages me because I think they weren't some super spiritual giants who had this amazing faith and mine is so pitifully rubbish. Actually, they were just like us. They prayed for stuff and sometimes it didn't happen. And they carried on praying and then sometimes a miraculous thing happens and they struggle to believe it's even happened. I'm like, whoa. So their faith isn't any bigger than ours is. And that really encourages me. Um, to keep praying. And I think also the other thing, just to bring up, the final thing to bring up was that they prayed together. They gathered to pray. Now, I know this, we can pray on our own and that that's brilliant. And we can pray uh, and we can share prayer requests on, on social media, like be on Sunday and text and stuff like that. And that's all great. And that's brilliant stuff. But there's something powerful. And again, I don't understand why about praying together. Jesus said, we're two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them, where two or three gather. There's a reason, there must have been a reason he said that. Um, there was something powerful about praying with other people. I don't know why. The only thing I do know about praying with other people is that just like this morning when Shirley prayed, it lifted me up. That when we pray together, we can come in dejected, we can come in with very little faith, and we can hear a prayer of somebody else and it lifts us. And then that encourages us to, to pray again. And somebody else can pray something else and go, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. I, didn't, I wasn't feeling that, but you've said it and now I can pray amen to that. And sometimes you can't have the words on your own because it's so too painful, but you need other people to pray alongside you. So many stories in the Bible about that. And uh, we don't have time to go into them. But one of them was Moses when he's, been, when he's praying and his arms have been lifted up by Aaron and her. And, he's, and that was a sign, wasn't it, of... In, 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 uh, Jews prayed with their arms lifted up and so he was praying and as he's, as he's getting tired his arms are dropping and they lift his arms up and I think that's what we do when we get together we lift one another's arms up when we're struggling we haven't got the words and we don't know what to do and we haven't got the faith to pray with sincere and honest conviction we need somebody else to come along and lift, say I'll lift your arm up um, so I suppose just to finish today I want to, I suppose, to call, could, could the band come back for, for us? Is that all right? Um, I just want to speak to those people, particularly at the moment, who are facing a crisis. Or you're carrying a burden for somebody else who is in crisis at the moment. I just wonder if you would, if you feel comfortable, you don't have to, you might not want to. Would you stand if you are, if you are in a crisis at the moment, or you're carrying a burden for somebody else who is in crisis? So there's quite a few people. So for the rest of us, I just want you to, if you're near that person, to, to just 
put your hand on the shoulder. Just get alongside them. Let's have somebody next to everybody. If you're next to somebody standing right now, would you get alongside them? You don't have to explain what the situation is unless you want to. But we're lifting one another's arms up in prayer. We're standing alongside one another. And just perhaps as the band just quietly play, just I just want you where you are to pray for the people that you're with. You don't have to ask them what the situation is if you don't want to, unless they want to tell you. But give voice to the prayer. <clears throat>